Cageclub.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And we're here to take one last look at Joss Whedon's influence on the Avengers franchise. Yeah. I do believe that Jon Favreau and Joss Whedon make up the majority of the narrative voice that shapes phases one and two of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Absolutely, James Gunn and Edgar Wright, as well as a number of other directors and writers, did have influence. And of course, the Russo brothers mm. and Marcus McFeely, that dream team of writers that are all over <laughs> Cap. And I 100% know that everybody came together to make this, but Joss Whedon was kind of the golden child. He was the one that all of this was focused around, for, by. It was Joss Whedon's baby, and we were all just kind of hoping he'd help us push the carriage. Ah, baby metaphors. Nice. Now, I actually wanted to bring up something that I didn't get a chance to talk about last episode. This movie title alone was actually kind of controversial at the time. Just before the movie came out, there had been an Age of Ultron marvel comics event so everybody was kind of like oh half of the no all of the all of the stars of that are missing how is that even possible and well it takes a little bit of background number one they are completely unrelated but it does kind of lead to a funny conversation prior to the success of a relaunch in 2005 2006 the avengers had primarily been an underperforming title at marvel the x-men always took up the big sales and the Fantastic Four were the first family. The Avengers were that book that you took when you had Captain America or Iron Man. You, you took Avengers too. That was something you can read about in a number of interviews with a number of different writers from Marvel throughout the 70s and 80s. In 2005, Marvel took a look at their best properties and what they still owned the rights to and what movies they could make, and they strategically designed a new Avengers around what they owned. They made some weird choices, like pulling out all of the mutants, with the exception of Wolverine, who was added to the Avengers for the first time. Spider-Man went from somebody who would occasionally, and I mean occasionally, and I mean like once every seven years, would help the Avengers to a full Avenger. They retained Cap and Tony, as they were still around, but they had just recently killed off Thor, I think this was in part to make the mythos a bit more accessible. Additionally, they have Spider-Woman. Ooh. Ooh, a Spider-Lady. Spider-Ladies are hot right now. We're really excited about it. Into the Spider-Verse really helped change the game for superhero movies. We know we're not going to cover it here on MCU.HTML, but it would be foolish not to give a great shout-out to Into the Spider-Verse. Under Brian Bendis' pen, the Avengers went from a minor title that no one really cared about to the biggest book in comics. It was actually helped out, though, by a relaunch of the Avengers in an alternate universe. Once again, Brian Bendis, having just gotten a big contract for Spider-Man, and <clears throat> Brian Bendis, having just gotten a big contract for Daredevil and working on the Daredevil title, which would become a legendary run, did Ultimate Spider-Man. Ultimate Spider-Man, one of the best-selling titles of its era, one of the few books to retain its value in the digital market days, created an alternate universe for Marvel fans to 
kind of come in like a they, hey you don't want to read 40 years you can jump in with just seven issues the ultimate avengers or as they were known the ultimates were about as hardcore as they could get one time hank pym sprayed a wasp shrunken janet with insecticide and then put a lid on her uh in this universe wanda and pietro are in fact incestuous cap's kind of like xenophobic mm-hmm. and like punches people in the face and says stuff like the ami mask doesn't stand for france and it's just not good it's not my thing it's mark millar so if you're a fan of kick-ass it's probably your speed anyway a guy named brian hitch got very famous for doing ultimates a number of other things i mean brian hitch had already been a name but ultimates was his big wow moment brian bendis was preparing to exit new avengers in 2011 2012 so he could take on other projects at Marvel, including the X-Men, which did not last anywhere near as long. And he came up with this amazing story called Age of Ultron, and he said, I want Brian Hitch. Now, when I tell you that Brian Hitch is such an incredibly talented penciler, every panel looks like a cover, really truly. And do you know how he does that, you guys? He does it by taking his goddamn time. So... Age of Ultron was first seated in an issue called Avengers 12.1. Point one issues were meant to be easy jump on points for fans in April of 2011. By taking a look at the schedule and some slightly less usual attempts to create mini events, we can kind of assume that Avengers Age of Ultron was originally meant to run in December of 2012 and January of 2013. And instead we got a mini event called Avengers End Times, rather similar to Endgame. Avengers Ultron eventually did come out in May of 2013, although Brian Hitch ultimately wound up taking so long he was not the only penciler on the 10-issue title. Yikes. He did do issues 1 through 5, and then Brandon Peterson did most of issues 6 through 9, but he also needed help from Carlos Pacheco on issues 6 and 7, and then Brian Hitch, Brandon Peterson, Carlos Pacheco, Bruch Guse, Alex Maleev, David Marquez, and Joe Quesada all drew issue 10. How many people is that? So it's like segmented and it's all of these like epilogues that introduce new things in the in the universe and they pad it with a whole bunch of extra pages and then they jack it up a couple dollars. Still though. Yeah, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven pencilers in like 48 pages or something. Wow. Age of Ultron took so long to come out that Bendis himself had recently killed a character off that was needed for the plot of Age of Ultron, so they had to have Brian Hitch go back and redraw the character to be someone different. The character in question was Professor Charles Xavier, and they were like, who shares a body shape with Professor Charles Xavier and is also psychic? And somebody was like, add hair, it's Emma Frost. (gasps) So they just... They just had Brian Hitch come in and redraw all the Xavier panels as Emma Frost. Did they have an explanation as to why Emma was sitting throughout the entire appearance? Well, funny enough, at that point, Xavier was walking around anyway. Ah, just their luck. But that would have been really funny. It was as if they were trying to cut around her pregnancy or something. Yeah, oh my god, that would have... We can't help it, you guys. The character we've decided to draw is hiding a pregnancy. She has to be drawn sitting all the time. You know, it was really just the wheelchair that was the sticking point for me when you said that they had to draw 
him as someone else. He's, you know, a an, an average build bald man, so sure, throw a wig on him and change his features, and he could be literally anyone. But when you have such a specific body shape, I feel like if it was Cap that they had to pull out, they would have had a similarly difficult time. Not everyone is necessarily that shape. And when you have a character who goes around in his chair with the X's on the wheels. That's a very specific shape to have to try and cover. It also would have been very frustrating at that point if he had been in the wheelchair to make a point about ableism, to replace a character with a disability with a character without a disability would have been disappointing. Mm -hmm. Additionally, that's actually a common theme of the classic Avengers era. You had people who would just sub in for other people. If you've been listening to X's for Podcast, you might have heard Kyle and I talking on the Champions about how originally Hercules was used as a replacement for Thor whenever Thor was off doing Norny things for too long. And they just needed to someone to come in and be like, muscle have at thee. Although, Herc was much hornier. Much, much hornier. I like it. But you said something I'd like you to elaborate on. You said... When Thor was off doing Norny things. Now, one of the things that we know that we'll get into more detail about later is the fact that the vision pond that Thor goes to, he's supposed to be communicating with the Norns. And there's a whole segment cut out from that that we'll talk more about later. Could you elaborate on Thor doing Norny things in the comics so we will have a reference later to understand what they would have been going for? I was using Norny things as kind of a catch-all. So what would frequently happen is Thor would get wrapped up in an Asgardian adventure so significant that they really wouldn't be able to bring him back to Midgar for any period of time. He would be off fighting the hordes of hell, or he would be trapped in an alternate dimension trying to stop Loki, who has convinced an indigenous people to worship him. There would always be some reason Thor was off for 12, 13, 18 issues if that writer had nothing to do with the Avengers title. In those instances, the Thor writer would just take Thor, and they would replace Thor in Avengers, that dynamic, that powerful godlike character who could bring in mythology, who was super muscular, who could serve as the beefcake art. They would just bring in Hercules instead. When Captain America would need to leave, they would replace him with U.S. Agent or Nomad, who were Captain America-like characters later on. It would go on to be the Winter Soldier. Mm, mm mm-hmm. So whenever they needed to do some sort of extended mythology segment where Thor is off and we're getting these weird adventures of him and sorcerers and dark gods, they would just replace him in the narrative. Here, we actually get kind of a sense of that. Thor going off on a vision quest that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the movie we're in. Normally, that would have just been presented in Thor's title. Yeah, absolutely. He would have returned to the Avengers when the time was right and the story warranted Thor being in the title. Because that's something I do need to stress. I'm going to be very in defense of both Hulk and Thor being completely out of the picture for Civil War. This is necessary. Whichever side had Hulk or Thor would have automatically won. Yeah? Yes. (laughs) We will also talk in Civil War for a moment about how the comic book Civil War was the supposed moment of Thor's resurrection and return after the events of Ragnarok. It's all very confused and complicated with the way that it translates from the comics. I definitely do agree with that. It's really hard to pack 40 years into 40 minutes. And they've spent 11 years trying to do it, and I think they've done an admirable 
And I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is an admirable first major attempt at doing something like this, at least through the first 22 films. They were trying to do a very big thing, and I think they did the best they could. Someday we will probably get another interpretation of these characters, and we'll probably be able to see something more in line with Thor going off and having this side story to uh, go on his vision quest and be able to come back perhaps television show perhaps netflix miniseries so much about form and media is changing that um you know someone will be able to do it much better someday but it's not bad for a first shot absolutely and what's really amazing i'm so glad you touched on tv series because i am so excited about the vision and scarlet witch tv series that we are supposedly getting at disney plus because it sounds like it's going to be in some ways maybe a reference to a 12 issue miniseries they had together in the 80s that is much beloved and a significant part of canon. Alan, you were right. I still am Danny Crane. I've still got it. And I've decided for my New Year's resolution, I'm going to remember that. What's your resolution? It's October. Okay, but enough about a TV show that may or may not exist on an app down the line. This is Age of Ultron, and it's here, and it's now. Well, it was there, and it was then. And to get back to it, we're at the farm already the farm and i like two things about the farm i like cap with an axe and i like cap ripping a log apart and other than that i kind of hope hawkeye's whole family got snapped yeah the daddy on the farm goes woof but other than that it's a lot of heteronormative garbage here at the farm i'm not even saying that i hate hawkeye's family or him having a family because i don't I don't feel it's completely inorganic or shoved in. If he was married to a man, that's what we'd be hearing. But no, I think the fact that we don't know anything about this character. The only thing that I thought, I think I said last episode that was glaring is when he gets the phone call and he's like, it's my girlfriend. Because then the audience is supposed to go, wait, you said you didn't have a girlfriend. But other than that, yeah, I buy this. I'd buy that Nick Fury has a wife. We don't know everything about these characters. It's really interesting that you should say that because I do want to touch on something in the comics. We do try to keep these separate from the comics, and I've definitely already overloaded this episode with comic stuff. But that's actually one of the problems with Age of Ultron. It's trying to do too many things from the comics all at once. Hawkeye does have a secret non-super-related family in the Ultimate Universe. The Ultimate Universe, which is the previously aforementioned hardcore gritty reboot of the Avengers. And this seems to be something that Joss really liked from that run, and I appreciate that. Hawkeye's entire family is killed in that universe to like get at him so it's sort of weird that this is something that joss carried over i get it but and just one last thing it's really funny that you said that nick fury might have a secret family because in the comics white nick fury was replaced with his replaced with his mixed race son nick fury to make him look more like a younger version of samuel l jackson so nick fury sure does have a son <laughs> nice. I think part of why Joss chose to include it even... Well, I mean, obviously, and I've said it before, this family's probably going to get snapped, and that's probably why he's running an ad game, and, you know, there's that. But I think Joss also included it, sadly, because it gave Hawkeye more of a reason to relate to Wanda and Pietro. He has a daughter and son, so he feels fatherly. As if there can't be other reasons that someone could have a paternal leaning or something. I kind of can't imagine a world in which Captain America looks at you dead in the eyes and calls you son and you don't say, yes, daddy. I can't imagine that that would have been necessary to create a fatherly figure in these films. And like, love the way you say it, but even actually paternally like, yes, daddy, yes, daddy, America, you are America's father. I will do whatever you say. I would do whatever Chris Evans said. And I also think it's important that we bring up something that's a little bit larger picture than we're talking about here. 
I personally very much do appreciate that Joss is trying to create a character who would have emotional sympathy for Wanda and Pietro. But at the same time, I have to side with Samuel L. Jackson on something. They really did trot him out as a big celebrity to stick back in the closet whenever they didn't want him. Mm. I feel like he made a comment about being left out of Civil War that I read where he said, it's really weird. I'm the impetus for bringing the whole team together. You say you have to have me. I am necessary to this universe. You need to have me in this movie franchise. And then you leave me out of all of the biggest things. And I play such a small role in so many of them. Nick Fury would have been a great candidate to show emotional forgiveness to Wanda and Pietro. He has a higher ranking position. In fact, Hawkeye having reasons to on the ground constantly kind of daddy Wanda is a little bit insulting. And I would have preferred Nick from a further position being a little bit more like, you know what? I'm the father of the Avengers and these two are trying to hurt my kids. And I would have taken that a little bit more smoothly than this entire false generated backstory where Hawkeye settled down with Velma before she went over and started dating whichever guy in the DCU. (laughs) I could even see that they were trying to do what you're suggesting with Nick Fury and the Avengers and him giving them a dad pep talk. I even wrote that down in my notes. I even specifically said it's cute that a pep talk from their dad galvanizes the team, but I noticed that because I've watched this a million times and I'm looking at this a million times and one of the things that I'm giving the hardest eye to in this watch is all the parenting crap. I fucking hate that the thing that gives Bruce an epiphany is seeing one of the kids horrible finger painting of a butterfly and that's when he realizes it's a cocoon and he wants to build a new but like fucking stupid. You're you're again they're making Bruce really weird in this movie. And it's fine in so many ways because I believe that the Hulk is a fan favorite that everybody just kind of feels bad for. I don't know that anybody's like, yeah, the fucking Hulk, right? Also, I saw a really funny pun that was, why doesn't Marvel just advertise things on the Hulk since he's a giant banner? (laughs) And I thought that was really funny. But he, you do kind of feel bad for the Hulk more than anything. He's the one who can't support a movie franchise despite being one of the most recognizable characters. And he's the one who's changed actors the most times in the last 20 years. And there was that TV show, and you can kind of recognize Lou Ferrigno if you had to, and maybe Bill Bixby if you've got like a real deep well. But Hulk is this character they just couldn't get right. Originally, there were all these rumors he was going to show up in Guardians 2, and then all of that became Ragnarok. And I just feel like the Hulk can't catch a break, and it just gets worse in the heteronormative problematic stuff with Black Widow. Yeah, it's it's all the more clear that they didn't really know what they were doing with Bruce Banner as a character, especially from the uh, the scene where Natasha calls herself a monster for being sterilized. It's, I, you know, I just want to love this franchise, so I want to be able to defend this, but honestly, especially four years later, no, it's so weird and uncomfortable. The scene even starts uncomfortable. Natasha is bizarrely throwing herself at Bruce after he makes a comment about how the world saw the real Hulk for the first time, which, when I thought about it, is really true. Apart from grainy footage from Harlem, we have the world hasn't seen the Hulk except working with the Avengers. They haven't seen him terrorize anything until now. And Natasha's response is to say that she was hoping that Bruce would be hard on her. What? The world got to see the big green monster, and now she wants to see the pink one. Uh, uh, uh. 
Yeah, I actually have a huge problem with this scene because we get so little humanity from Nat throughout this film for a character that I think Joss Whedon wove beautifully throughout the narrative of the first film. She is sidelined and seconded over and over in this movie. I believe it's because Scarlett Johansson became pregnant. Yes. And that's why she's the one who's Ultron's prisoner and is missing from part of the film. I can accept that, but I don't know. I feel but like the we... other stuff, it's not it's not everything in the movie. It's just that one part. Absolutely. This, this stuff is still so weird. And one of the things that gets me is I feel like there's other ways to shoot around an actress being pregnant. Yes. Especially in the world of reshoots. I believe I've read that Dark Phoenix and New Mutants have collectively had so many reshoots that they needed to get a gun permit. And I'm beginning to come I'm beginning to come worried about how many things are going on in Avengers 2. Age of Ultron has so much going on, but it still doesn't have time for Black Widow. We get all of that weird stuff in flashbacks to her time in the Red Room. And then we all of her time in the Red Room. Everything they show us. They don't talk about how she's programmed to be a killer as much. They don't talk about how she's programmed to never form true emotional relationships with anybody because she needs to treat everybody as disposable. They don't talk about that here. Here they talk about the fact that no matter how much Hulk fucks her, she's not going to have any Hulklings. And one of the things that upsets me the most about that is this notion that an inability to biologically procreate is something you should feel bad about. And it's not, especially in this film, as we mentioned just moments ago, about where Hawkeye feels very paternal toward these people that are not his biological kids. There's so many different ways to be a parent. It's so interesting, and I didn't think about it till you just said it right now, but Ultron can't genuinely procreate, and he actually is a monster. Hulk probably shouldn't. I don't know what Gamma does to your balls, and maybe Bruce doesn't either anymore, since now he's the world's greatest programmer. He seems to be implying that he can't have kids, or at the very least that he feels he shouldn't, so that's there at least. There are so many people in this movie who can't genuinely have children, and they are monsters? So this sequence is deeply problematic and troubling because just because you can't reproduce sexually through your junk doesn't mean you can't be a great parent. You know, it's a weird momentary tangent, but I know more and more we're talking about how problematic Friends is in retrospect. But one of the things that I've always appreciated that they did is that the longest prolonged couple of Chandler and Monica ultimately find that they cannot have biological children it's not some sort of devastating story and they don't try to pull that thing where she thinks she can't have kids but surprise she gets pregnant anyway they go through the course of adoption and they do stories about it and they're genuinely happy with the children that they end up with and it's really upsetting to see a film like this 11 years after that story still being like no, but if you can't biologically reproduce, you're a monster. It's one thing to talk about people feeling that way themselves, but then there isn't enough in this film countering that point to say, no, you're not a monster. That's the problem. And I just want to, without getting too preachy about it, outside of the very real and psychological conversation of womb envy, a gay man would not have written a movie where someone unable to have biological children is a monster and incapable of being a parent. Yeah. That would not occur to somebody who had a different than heterosexual perspective on life. And that's part of the problem here. I'm personally out of mean things to say about this scene. <laughs> and I can't wait to get to my mean things to say about Ulti Want Body Helen, where Ultron takes Helen Cho and forces her to build him a new body while under mind control. So I just want to run through that real quick. Yeah. But 
Kevo, do you have anything left about the farm? The only thing is I really enjoy the scene between Steve and Tony because it is such a interesting precursor to what's going to come in Civil War. You can really see that they were trying to work the seeds for that confrontation between these two characters in as a lead up to that. So that's that's pretty cool. I would also be very happy to find out that they didn't think it was there until they were looking at the footage and then were like, nope, it's there. Civil War next. True. That would be pretty cool too, but that's much less likely because they do not play games with stuff like that. So I guess that does bring us to one of the more insulting and dark moments of the film. Ultron kidnaps Helen Cho and because she's the one who created the cradle and she's the only one smart enough to build this. Using mind control forces her to create children for him. That is just about the darkest rape metaphor you can get without doing rape stuff. You know, I don't think necessarily that that's right there on the surface, but it definitely is a deeper read on the situation and certainly is troubling. It's troubling that it's at least two women that are kidnapped in this film. It's troubling that she's the only major woman of color in the entire film, and she's a victim. We're going to see that she ultimately gets a happy ending at the end of this when we see her working at the new Avengers facility, so that's pretty cool. But it, it doesn't make up for mistakes. Truly, because ultimately her only contribution to this film is stand around, have a couple of lines, comment that she finds a guy hot, and then is forced by a male presenting robot to make babies for her while under mind control. I just kind of can't. I just kind of can't hand wave it. And frankly, I can't hand wave most of this scene. It was just way too long. The full action sequence is about nine minutes. A lot of that, I feel, really could have been cut. There's really cute things about it. I love Nat picking up Steve's shield for him. When she's going up those stairs and she's like, out of the way, coming through. Like, that's, I like that slapstickish sort of humor, but it, way too long a sequence. Yeah, my notes say this sequence can be called The Avengers Rob the Cradle <laughs> because that's what they're doing here. I enjoy that it's sort of like this, track that truck. And it's this kind of like, I don't know, it's almost like they wanted to have a car chase because this one didn't have a car chase like the first one opened on. Yeah, and, you know, stuff like that is always fun. We even had one on the Grand Prix in Iron Man 2. They just love doing stuff with cars. I refer to those as pod racing sequences, yeah. because the one in Thor 2, The Dark World, is just so overwhelmingly a pod racing sequence. Yes. Car explodes so good. How you make car explode so happy. So, I feel like this scene at least shows that the Widow is super powerful, super capable, super amazing in yes. every way. Her... Being kidnapped is not a result of her foolishness or inability. She's going up against all powerful creatures, and she is human and still manages to hang in better than anybody. Because to be totally honest with you, Hawkeye does nothing in this film but talk. Mm. The ultimate real problem isn't that Black Widow is kidnapped. It's that Black Widow is the only female hero in the film, and I'm only not counting Wanda because she starts as a villain and switches sides, but she is the only major female hero in this film. And she's missing for a huge portion of it as a prisoner. At least when Thor is missing for a huge portion of this film, he's going on a weird fucked up vision quest with his old buddy. Yeah, when Natasha is missing, it's because she's kidnapped by the bad guy. When Thor is missing, it's because he has more important things to do than be in the movie. And that's a really important distinction. Once again, Thor has a side quest, and it's all about Asgard and... 
the Infinity Stones and Ragnarok. And Cap almost kind of has a side story in every Cap story is Cap trying to understand the world he now lives in and can barely get a grip on it. Tony and Bruce, of course, have the shared story of everything. But Natasha's only story is, I can't make babies feel bad for me. And that's just not fair treatment of women. It's just not fair treatment of women. I do appreciate, though, that we are going to see when she is held captive that she engineers her own rescue. She finds a way using just discarded debris to get in contact with Hawkeye and let him know where she is. That's giving her a lot of agency as a prisoner, which is a creative choice that he that Joss Whedon did not need to make. But again, you got to really think about balancing all of these scales. I understand, you know, it's difficult to keep all those plates spinning, but that's part of your job, too. Denny Crane. Thank you. Denny Crane. Denny Crane. Denny Crane. Denny Crane. From a character who's in pretty much the whole movie and gets very little attention or screen time, to a character who's in, like, just the double-sized finale of the movie, and the entire fucking movie could have been called Avengers Vision Quest. Ah. So... We finally get Vision. Now, to understand how the comics are different from the movies isn't really important here, but it's important to say that Vision is one of the most consistent and powerful Avengers. He's like Iron Man meets Thor wrapped up in the morality of Captain America. And he marries the Scarlet Witch in the comics, and they have kids, and it's a thing. Vision is such a humongous and fundamental part of the Avengers, as is Scarlet Witch, in a way that I feel that that is where some of Joss Whedon's, for lack of a better term, uh, monocled vision, sort of this really narrow tube of what he can see when it comes to this movie. He saw the things he wanted from the comics. He saw Vision, Scarlet Witch, and Ultron. And I genuinely don't know that he remembered to make a movie in the process of trying to include all of his favorite comic elements in this film. I definitely see that, and I think part of that too is, I don't even know that I would count Ultron on that list, because it's, this is such a strange Ultron. It's more like an evil Tony Stark wearing an Ultron mask than it is anything else. And I think, I think that's part of my issue with this Ultron. I feel in many ways this is Ultron in name only. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, okay. Ultron is not the strongest villain in the world. Ultron is not the thing that when people see pictures of him, they're going to go, holy shit, gotta go see that movie. Ultron isn't Galactus. He's not Magneto. He's not Lex Luthor. And I don't even think Lex Luthor carries the caveat that he once carried. So Ultron is here as a remnant of the comics. And you're right. He's not at all the Ultron people from the comics would care about. So he's not comic Ultron, and he's not really movie Ultron as a character on his own, he is in many ways shades of Tony, and it just leaves me wondering what Ultron's purpose here was. I get that, I do. I would also like to ask you a question and for some insight about Vision. I don't super know the character from the comics that I have read, and especially the fact that this Vision is an evolution of the AI Jarvis that had not existed in the comics. How does that relate to actual Vision and that character's creation and evolution? This is kind of a toughie. So, to step back slightly, 
Hank Pym created Ultron. Ultron created Vision. Vision was sent to attack the Avengers, eventually becomes an Avenger. Okay. So, Vision is not really how Vision is presented here. The best way I can describe it is Vision is kind of a fusion of Adam Warlock, Vision himself, and Wonder Man, who are all sort of either Marvel Avenger or Marvel Cosmic characters. It's kind of this super fusion of story. They're actually really hard to compare. That's why I'm so stammered at points about this movie, because I feel like they're trying to give me certain things, and they're kind of missing it. Like, not to jump too far ahead, but once Thor comes and brings Vision to life, basically, because of his amazing visions, haha, Vision can wield the hammer. And that's why it was really important to see all the stuff about the hammer earlier and who can and can't wield the hammer. So Vision handling it so effortlessly is kind of insane. Of course, he's powered by an Infinity Stone, which makes me wonder what would happen if Thor just smashed an Infinity Stone into his hammer the way Ronan did. But hey, whatever. And I'm left kind of cold on this Vision. By Endgame, I love him. But here... I feel like he's deeply underdeveloped. There were too many new characters for any of them to get consistent personalities. Do you feel his personality, not just here, but ongoing, matches the comic character at all? Or is it us just seeing Jarvis in a body? That's a really good question. I think Jarvis was a snarky AI. And I think Vision is extremely less snarky than Jarvis. That is really true. That is a good point about the changed characterization once he becomes Vision. Vision doesn't, like, make fun of people the way Jarvis enjoyed mocking Tony. So I think in that way, maybe that's even part of what Ultron is. Ultron is the snark from Jarvis, and Jarvis is all the purest parts of Tony's intention. And maybe that's even why he's worthy. Because Tony in and of himself is kind of worthy. Just, you know, he's Tony Stark. And he has trouble putting on his shoes without committing a sin. Bro, you could be, but you are your own worst enemy. I can relate. Now, that does kind of bring me to the stuff where Thor just comes back and Vision's alive and everyone is just okay with the naked flying robot with an infinity stone that can wield the hammer. There doesn't seem to be enough, hey guys, this guy might try to kill us. Everybody's kind of like, we don't know if we can trust you. We're cool with it. We trust you. I think that's literally why they had to put the hammer moment in. I think everyone takes Mjolnir pretty seriously. And like you said, that's why we needed the scene earlier of everyone trying to pick the hammer up. I think it then gets a little bit too silly at the end when Tony and Steve are arguing about worthiness and an elevator's not worthy. (laughs) Okay, but you guys certainly seem to trust him anyway, so I don't know why you're being little babies about this. As we record this, I'm standing here wearing a Captain Marvel shirt. I need to be very clear that if anybody says anything wrong about Carol Danvers, they're going to lose teeth in front of me. (laughs) When she comes up in X is for podcast and I cry every episode, you're all going to have to deal with it. So, I have had a number of complaints about Carol being the character that they flat out said is going to come in and save the day in in Avengers Endgame, because it feels like she's being sent in to save the day when she really wasn't part of the team that earned it. That's kind of how I feel about Vision here. Vision is kind of sent in at the end of the battle. I think Vision's in, what, 35 minutes of the movie? And he is the linchpin. It's about like 40 minutes that he's in out of two hours and 20. But yeah, 
I definitely agree with what you're saying. It's funny that you mentioned Carol and Captain Marvel because there's something we'll be discussing having to do with the deleted scenes that involves her coming in in that same capacity here in this film. But we'll get to that when we talk about the deleted scenes. Do we have anything more about the birth of Vision? I actually barely have anything else about the rest of the film because this is just another one of those MCU fight endings. That said, no, I don't have anything more about the birth of Vision. My only other note that I thought would be cool to share is I like when Bruce says it's definitely the end times when we know his next appearance is in Thor Ragnarok. It's just little moments like that that I can't tell if they're intentional or not. As many know, Tony in this film earlier on had said the phrase endgame. So that's pretty cool, but also pretty dumb. But I don't know. Really odd and ironic that... Bruce says it's the end times when I just explained that end times was the name of the arc that replaced Age of Ultron when Age of Ultron was a year late. Oh, then I'm definitely glad that I mentioned that. Yeah, he definitely says it. And speaking of things that definitely happen, we get an almost shot for shot in some ways recreation of the beginning of the Battle of New York. Huh. Tony has a conversation with Ultron. And it just kind of feels like Tony's conversation with Loki. I appreciate that Joss Whedon's Avengers Assemble is one of the greatest films I've ever seen in my life. It's a hell of a film from a very narrow viewpoint, and it's a great film from most viewpoints. And trying to ape it with Age of Ultron in this weird chopped up pieces of an A plot and B plot mixed together just does not feel fulfilling. That's what we said. There's just too much going on, and we know that... The ramifications of Ultron are ultimately going to pale in comparison to the conflict with Thanos, which did ultimately prove to be correct. I think the mostly action sequence that is Infinity War really does highlight how much Ultron was quote-unquote filler. And I say quote-unquote filler because every single thing that we read is just filler in our lives, so like, what the fuck, who cares? It's still a fun story. But the fact that they knew this wasn't going to be their main focus as the franchise does seem to shine through repeatedly. I like the action sequence, though. It definitely holds my interest for most of it, I'll be honest. I love that everyone gets cute new outfits and everything. Hawkeye gets a fancy man knee-length slim coat that's very slimming and cute on him. I don't know why more people don't talk about that. I think because it's hard to think of things to talk about with Hawkeye when it comes to this film. Hawkeye offers so little. And what's crazy is, and I mean this, I would have rather taken more Sam. I'm also, like, a huge Falcon fan, and that really is part of it. Like, I'm a humongous Falcon fan, but I would have taken more Falcon over Hawkeye in an instant. I definitely agree. I do. I appreciate that Sam does not show up as part of the cavalry, that instead it's Fury and Rhodey because we don't need to see every single hero jump in all the time every time, and the fact that Sam exclusively appears at the party in the beginning, and then we do still see him as the Falcon, being implied to be the next generation of Avengers. We're also going to see him immediately in the film following this one, when he has a conflict with Ant-Man. I think they're using Sam well enough, but he's definitely a character that I would have preferred to see more focus on than Hawkeye, who has not gotten anywhere near the characterization, and we only have seen Sam in one film as well. I'm... Getting a little ahead of myself, but I think it was so important to make Sam the Avenger that shows up in Ant-Man, because 
the end of this movie has some weird implications for the Marvel Universe, and it doesn't quite come together for me. Obviously, I'm jumping ahead. So to jump back a little bit, the Tony meeting Ultron thing only begins to move forward. Like The Avengers fighting Ultron only begins to move forward when the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier arrives. Once again, in case you don't remember what it is, it's a giant ship that can carry hella stuff. So here comes Nick Fury and Maria Hill on the helicarrier. Man, I just wish Agent Daisy Johnson was with them like she's supposed to be. I'm never going to stop being mad about Daisy Sky shield crap. Anyway, the team shot in this movie is... I have trouble explaining the team shot in this movie. The team shot in this movie feels more like somebody took a video, like using one of those cool panorama things that all phones seem to be able to do now, of cosplayers, and added some CGI. It sort of feels like Joss Whedon watched that clip of the pan around the six Avengers standing back to back from the Avengers and was like, how can I turn that one 15 second shot into a two and a half minute action sequence? And I don't think it's bad, but I can see where a lot of critics would have a problem with something like that. You have to know that you're watching a comic book movie, though. You can't say, why do these murders keep happening on Wisteria Lane? You're watching a fucking murder mystery soap. You know what you're watching. Please don't complain about the things that literally make up what this genre is. But also, do them well. I think do them well is the most important thing, because there is so much Joss Whedon did expertly in this film. There really is. I think there are moments in this movie that define the Marvel Cinematic Universe. My actual problem is that they never come together. This is a lot of really beautiful mechanical parts, none of which are designed for the same machine. And you're trying to stick these cogs that don't fit other cogs together, and then you're wondering why it doesn't power the engine. The movie has so many good pieces, but it's not the chassis for these pieces. And I do even think that it all runs. You ultimately, yes, did build a functioning car that can even work well, but it doesn't mean it's the best car it could have been. Agreed. That's a really great way. Thank you for adding on to that, because I don't think it's, I don't know, I really think this movie is somewhere between a B- and a C plus in a way that I have to be like, whichever one it gets, it's on the lower end. Do you know what's a really good example of how things just don't entirely catch the mark on this film? When... Captain America says, if you get killed, walk it off. I was like, ooh, I understand that he's trying to sound tough, but we do know that one of them is going to die. So that just sounds incredibly insensitive, and that's weird coming from Steve Rogers of all people. It's also rather ableist, if you ask me. So I think it's unfortunate that the one who dies is the super fast one who should have been able to run it off. I think Pietro's death is weird. And there is one thing I want to touch on with Pietro's death before we go any further. There were a lot of rumors that Quicksilver had to die in Age of Ultron because they could not secure the ongoing rights. They got the rights ongoingly to Scarlet Witch, but not Quicksilver, which is why he's Pietro in this movie and Quicksilver in the X-Men franchise. I remember those, and we were under the impression that that was part of the deal, that the X-Men franchise were allowed to take Quicksilver, and we got Scarlet Witch. However, it turns out that was Joss Whedon's decision, and that Disney insisted he film an ending where Pietro survives because they wanted to see the character keep going. As a matter of fact, the actor was shown costumes and concept design 
For his ongoing character, Joss Whedon made the decision to kill Pietro before giving him a personality. Joss Whedon is kind of the king of cannon fodder characters, and I think it's weird that he did it with Pietro, who's like the biggest dick in the Marvel Universe without question. He's like such an asshole. He's like Namor levels of asshole, which that doesn't mean anything to any of you. Okay. He is like the meanest son of a bitch that's still technically a good guy. Like the Punisher thinks Quicksilver's kind of an asshole. And I feel so many ways about his inclusion here. I just have to say that if one of the twins had to die to further the other's story, I'm going to thank my sons, stars, lucky garters, and moons that it was not Wanda, who is in so many ways the heart of the Avengers at all times in the comics. Like, seriously, the heart of the Avengers in the comics are Carol Danvers and Wanda Maximoff. And I didn't have either of them yet. And finally, I have Wanda. I'm glad I didn't lose her immediately, but Quicksilver's death is pathetic. I'd really love to know more about Joss's decision here in the film. It genuinely feels, for most of it, like they are telegraphing the inevitability of Hawkeye being the one who's going to be killed. And it's just not. It's not. And I wonder if he did that on purpose, if he was going to kill Hawkeye, but then someone was like, it's really tacky to introduce this guy's family and then kill him to make us hurt more. I don't know if it was intentionally a mislead to make us think it was going to be Hawkeye before it was ultimately Pietro. I'd love to know. I'm sure the information might even be out there, but it certainly was a very specific choice. And I just don't understand the choice. I'm so, so glad, like I said, we get to keep Scarlet Witch. I can't even keep talking about it. Scarlet Witch is like, no, you killed my brother. I'm so mad. I'm going to kill all the Ultrons now. Boom, boom, kill, kill. And then she basically goes Buffy season four and pulls Adam's heart out of his chest. I mean, Ultron's heart out of his chest. Oops. There is something about Ultron's defeat in these over and over ways. They have to keep defeating Ultron. They have to blow up Sokovia so that it doesn't crash into the earth and kill everyone. They have to kill all the Ultron bodies. They have, and it's so funny because like when Thor throws the hammer and casts lightning, 40 Ultrons die. When Scarlet Witch, you know, I, I just, I have to be real with you. Elizabeth Olsen's performance really fucking blows me away. I am so impressed with her, even from this film. She has no character, but I really feel like she gives an incredible performance. She has some character, but I hear what you're saying. And, when she unleashes her, you kill my brother, kind of weird, not quite fixed accent yet, where she's definitely not speaking in any specific accent, and it's kind of offensive, and she's using her powers. She takes out like 40 Ultrons at once. Tony takes out like 40 Ultrons at once. And then there's Hawkeye, and he's like, I broke one's hand. I stabbed this one in the nose. And he's just doing his best Hawkeye impression. But something I love is that they go out of their way to show that he is very deeply wounded at the end of the battle, uh, especially after they had Pietro die for him. It would have been really insulting if Hawkeye was just sort of, I'm fine, I'm walking around. Like, this was a serious, heavy battle. He did sustain damage. And, you know, the only other real damage, other than, you know, Sokovia, the Sokovia Accords, everybody dying, blah, blah, blah. Other than that, the only real damage to the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the Avengers themselves. The ending of Age of Ultron is explicitly and exclusively to break up the Avengers and form a new Avengers. 
I love where some of the team goes. Like, it's basically a who's who of my favorite Avengers. <laughs> but Hulk just blasts himself off into space. Hawkeye kind of retires. I don't really know what's going on with War Machine at the end of this movie. Before we move on real quick, though, I have a minor, but what I feel is still important note. When we see the scenes on the helicarrier, one of the operators is the dude who refused to follow Rumlow's order in The Winter Soldier and Sharon Carter stood up for. Like, that nervous little technician guy with the curly hair, he's working on the helicarrier now. And, oddly enough, still has the characterization of being this meek, terrified guy. But it was such an odd, yet specific, yet I think really cool thing to include, to show us. It's the same way that we're going to see, I actually had forgotten until we watched a recap of the film, but Eric Selvig is working at the Avengers facility. I believe earlier in the episode, we mentioned being afraid of what became of Eric after this movie. It's these little blink-and-you-miss-them moments where we see characterization for even minor background characters. And I think that's kind of the magic of Joss Whedon's Avengers. It's so human. Ultimately, the turns out the fine line between human and kind of feeble is pretty close. Yeah, yeah, it is. I don't really have much to say about the falling action of this film. We've mentioned several, several times that Hawkeye retiring is hard for us to care about when we've only seen him in one movie and we know he's coming back in another one and knew going into this movie that he was coming back for another one. And Natasha's scene with Nick Fury is a little weird. She says to him, did you know then what was going to happen? And I'm like, about you two banging? I, why would you think that Nick Fury knew that you might hook up with Bruce Banner, and why would he send you there to do that? And, you know, again, it's just weird. It's weird. And I think part of what's weird is that so much of it is, like, still, partial, it's kind of, did you know then what was going to happen? Did you know when you sent me to get Hulk that there was going to be an Ultron? Right. Is that what he's trying to say? Is that what she's asking? Is, did you know what all? It's a very... Huh, that's a fun line that doesn't have a lot of impact. And I feel like that's part of the issue. There's a lot of fun lines with no impact. That's basically been our review of the whole movie. Yeah, essentially. That and what I feel becomes another apparent theme of the film toward the end, which is nothing lasts forever. And neither did this movie. No, it didn't. We get an only team of Avengers at the end of this movie, which is Cap, Natasha, War Machine, Falcon, Vision, and Scarlet Witch, which, okay, I actually love this because to start, we're up multiple characters of color, we're up multiple women, and we're kind of featuring characters that feel a bit more like real to life, this is the Avengers, than the kind of like bunch of the best that we got before. But the ending is nowhere near as annoying as the post credit scene. Yeah, well, there's a mid credit scene of Thanos, and then that's it. There's... The Avengers will return, written at the end of the credits, and nothing else, which was especially jarring after both Thor and Captain America preceding this had plot-crucial mid-credits sequences. Thanos puts on a gauntlet that I'm pretty sure, canonically, shouldn't be the Infinity Gauntlet. It just, and it's, everything about Thanos before he starts showing up on the regular is kinda, kinda inconsistent garbage. Yeah, pretty much. Could you just say those two little words I so long to hear? We've talked a lot about the movie we saw, and I would like to talk for a few minutes about the movie we didn't see. 
There were so many deleted scenes in this film. As a matter of fact, the rumor that goes around is there's about four and a half hours of footage. All said and done, this movie was like four and a half hours long. And there were so, so many subplots. As a matter of fact, basically everyone got a subplot. Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver were originally going to be like handing out stolen supplies to the people of Sokovia. And we were going to get like characterization for them where they would be, you know, people. That would have been cool. Yeah, uh, it appears that this deleted scene was going to come after the Avengers left Sokovia and would have been a lead in that would have explained why they walked into uh, Von Strucker's old hideout to find Ultron. Someone would have told them, quote unquote, Iron Man is waiting for them. It would have been nice to see a little bit more characterization from these two, especially before they became villains, you know? Speaking of Von Strucker, Von Strucker was supposed to walk into his jail cell and just be killed off by an off-screen Ultron. Seriously, he was just supposed to show up and die. I love that that's a noteworthy deleted scene that somebody wanted to list and draw attention to. Guy walks into a room, gets shot. Well, then the following scene was going to be Maria Hill and Captain America talking about Ultron killing Von Strucker. So, I mean, it's literally a subplot they cut. And you know what? That really explains what we've been talking about, where Von Strucker feels so separate from the rest of this film that it's almost bizarre that they went out of their way to include a named character to be the opening villain. Clearly, he was supposed to have at least a slightly bigger role. Well, speaking of people that were supposed to have bigger roles that we kept commenting on were missing... Rhodey was supposed to have more going on. At one point, there was going to be a scene where Rhodey contacted the Black Widow and Stark about Ultron and all the sorts of, you know, terrifying nuclear problems they might have, at which point Stark sent War Machine a patch to keep Ultron from getting into the armor. Where was this scene? And evidently, we were supposed to get a scene of Thor going, Heimdall! Heimdall! I don't have any bars. Yeah, he tries to get in contact with Heimdall, and Heimdall does not respond, which I guess would have been seeding to lead into Thor Ragnarok, which is wild when you think about the fact that Thor Ragnarok is not going to come out for two and a half years after this movie. Because at this point, they're not even sure what Thor Ragnarok is going to be. At yeah. this point in production, Thor Ragnarok is going to be another dramatic, over-the-top, hardcore, intense Shakespearean film. As indicated by the earliest concept art and some of the early logos, it was not the incredible movie it turned into yet. Also, speaking of things that turn into things, we were actually supposed to get more of the Hulk's rampage in Africa. There were a number of scenes that were just meant to be extended featuring the Hulk, including his scene with Nat back at the farm. Because that's what we really wanted, was more of that scene. Speaking of scenes that we actually wanted more of, Vision's birthing scene was originally longer. Huh. In fact, you might even recognize some of the scenes that aren't in the film from the trailer. The trailer featured cut imagery, which is really fascinating. Apparently, there's also cut footage of an extended fight scene with Thor and the other Avengers. I don't know how I would have liked that. That sounds to me like it would have been a tribute to the fact that he was originally sent by Ultron to fight the Avengers. And it's also that the body was created to house Ultron, so I wouldn't have been surprised if there was programming he needed to overcome that could have been explained away in a line. But things that can't be explained away in a line... The Thor subplot. I believe, for many people, the Thor subplot of this film is the most confusing. Yeah. Well, it turns out there's a really good reason for that. I've read different arguments, and I've read different numbers. I've heard as little as an additional 40 minutes, and I've heard as much as an additional hour and 20 minutes of Thor that was meant to set up Ragnarok, including a scene where Tom Hiddleston shoots a cameo as Loki, appearing to Thor. Later on, Tom Hiddleston goes on to say that 
he did his Anthony Hopkins impression, pretending to be Odin. And Thor goes, that is uncanny. And it was supposed to be Thor figuring out on some level, though not consciously, that Loki had replaced Odin. Mm, because it was supposed to be part of his vision given to him by Wanda, like his crazy dream that he has where he sees Heimdall. Loki was supposed to be there. But the problem was that test audiences became confused, and some thought that Loki was in control of Ultron, so ultimately they had to cut it for that reason, because seeing Loki out of nowhere when he was the villain of the last Avengers film was too confusing. That is... Thanks, test audiences. Thanks. But something that actually might have been a little confusing for people, and I maybe understand it being cut, there was going to be a scene where Captain America and the Avengers, when they first get to Sokovia, find graffiti calling Captain America a fascist. And that's actually why he doesn't wear his helmet later in the film. Huh. Interesting. Because they view the Avengers as the bad guys. Which is definitely a theme that we are delving further and further in as we get into this franchise. And it's honestly not one that I always love. Because I really feel like there's no counterbalance. I guess because we as the audience are the ones that root for these superheroes. But I need to feel like there's people in this world who value what they're doing for society. Now, the rest of the deleted scenes that I think are of note are almost all Quicksilver. Quicksilver had a scene where he rescued a woman during the battle and then flirted with her to be like, maybe I'll see you later. And there was evidently footage shot of Quicksilver at the Avengers new base at the end of the film Mm, and he is not the only one at one point carol danvers as captain marvel was supposed to appear in this film and be part of the climactic battle much in the way that vision sweeps in out of nowhere and helps save the day but it was decided by kevin feige and others that it would remove too much of the power from her story to have her just appear fully costumed and fighting with the Avengers. There are even uh, special effects test plates that were shot of Captain Marvel flying into the Avengers headquarters at the end of the film as part of the new lineup. And they reused those uh, effects plates for Scarlet Witch flying in instead. So I think what you're trying to tell me is Joss Whedon actually did want more female Avengers in his movies. He'd wanted Wasp in the first movie, and he'd wanted Carol Danvers in the second movie. But for some reason, things like The Farm took precedence. I think we've even said it before in the episode, and you've definitely been saying a lot. I wonder what the film would look like with all of these things that were cut. I made a joke about the scene between Bruce and Tasha being extended, but maybe it would have been less uncomfortable. Maybe they would have focused more on how she doesn't feel human because of how much she's killed. I we'll unfortunately probably never know. And what's so strange about that is when they took a look at Avengers Infinity War, they said, too big, two movies, cut it up, get it out. They didn't do that for Age of Ultron, despite it coming in at something like four hours. And I think with all the rumors about Endgame being three and a half hours, three hours, considering giving it an intermission like it's the fucking sound of music, I think that is excellent, because if the hills are going to come alive with the sounds of Infinity... We need that movie to be as long as possible. One of the things that I love the most, too, is that I don't think I've seen any feedback from anyone saying, boo, that's too long. Any geek response that I have seen to hearing that this movie could be three and a half hours is, yes, make it longer, four hours. Because we know in so many ways, this is the end. So that kind of feels like a wrap up on everything Age of Ultron. It hurts to say goodbye to Joss Whedon, but it feels like we're kind of going out on a low note. And maybe that tells me it's time to say goodbye. 
So, Kevo, what do you remember about Ant-Man? Uh, I remember being very nervous because Ant-Man is a hero that I have limited experience with. Uh, Paul Rudd isn't necessarily the first actor that you would go to when you think superhero. None of us really knew uh, what Evangeline Lilly's role was going to be in this movie. We just knew she was not Janet. And especially because Ant-Man came only two months after Age of Ultron, and because of the place that it sits as the closing chapter of Phase 2 for some reason, definitely was very nervous going into this film. I certainly remember that much. I'm a big Hank Pym fan. I just want to jump in here really quick. There is a lot of knowledge out there about the fact that Hank Pym did strike Janet. Hank Pym Ant-Man struck his wife Wasp while he was mentally ill. And it's a really funny story that's not funny at all. The writer intended it to be he raised his hand in anger and it became like slowly closer and closer to hitting her in the process of art. So I understand that Hank Pym has a hard reputation to bring to the film franchise. That said, this is not comic Scott Lang. And I found that interesting. I remember thinking none of this feels like the Marvel Universe. This is the first real Marvel Cinematic Universe film that stands on its own. Okay. Yeah, I could definitely see that. This is as we are entering Phase 3. And I guess that's one of the reasons why it's good that this movie closes out Phase 2, because it introduces that concept. As we get into Phase 3, we're going to start seeing films that really stand on their own more. And that's pretty cool. Well, Kevo, until the films can stand on their own at 80 feet tall, where can people find you on the internet? People can find me on the internet standing 86 feet tall at Kevo Really on both Instagram and Twitter. As always, you can check out our awesome comic at KidRiotComics.com. And don't forget, you can check out our kick-ass Kickstarter where you can get your own Riot Badge enamel pin. So don't forget to check that out. We have the link up on our website as well as on Cage Club. You can check us out on X's for Podcasts, where along with our amazing boyfriend and our best friend Kyle, we take a look at the X-Men comic book franchise starting with Giant Size X-Men number one. Don't forget to check out Now and Again, where I, with my best friend Chris, take a look at music in the form of the Now That's What I Call Musics, which sometimes can barely be called music. Other than that, you can catch me being barely dressed over on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right, till next time, we'll see ya. And until next time, I'm Denny Crane, still Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs.